0: Howdy folks, I want to start off this episode by apologizing for missing last week's episode. I fell out of my car and ended up with a badly sprained foot and ankle. I'm I'm very clumsy, (laughs) but I'm back now. Just in time for our Halloween season to start. Halloween is probably my favorite holiday. I compare it to Cinderella. It's 24 hours of getting to be someone you most definitely are not. I thought we would start off our spooky season with an unsolved mystery from my home state of West Virginia. No, we're not talking about Mothman. Today, we are going to discuss the mysterious disappearance of the Solder children from Fayetteville. Starting with this episode, I will most likely be going more in-depth with crime scenes, specifically for Halloween. Warning. The following case involves possible death or kidnapping of children, as well as information regarding death by fire. Listener discretion is advised. Giorgio Sadu was born November 23, 1895, in Tula, Sardina, Italy. In 1908, when Giorgio was only 13, he and his older brother immigrated to the US. His older brother would return to Italy right after clearing customs at Ellis Island. George, as he was later known in the US, never spoke about why he left homeland. George eventually found work in Pennsylvania, as a water boy for the railroad workers. He took a more permanent position as a truck driver in Smithers, West Virginia. From there, he started his own trucking company, initially hauling field dirt to construction sites, and then later hauling coal. Jenny Cipriani was a storekeeper's daughter, Ann Smithers, and she also immigrated from Italy at a young age. She and George would marry and go on to have 10 children. By 1923, when their eldest was born, the business was doing very well. So, so well, in fact, that the family was considered one of the most respected middle-class families around. However, George had very strong opinions and didn't care to express them. His biggest opinions were regarding Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. His opinions would lead to very strong arguments within their small community of mostly Italian immigrants By the time Silvio was born in 1941, Joseph or Joe as he was known had left home to serve in the US military during during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was executed, and George's criticism of him had left some hard feelings. In October of 1945, An insurance salesman that George had turned down warned George that his house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed. The man blamed it on George's remarks about Mussolini. Another visitor to the home, claiming to seek employment with the family, took the occasion to walk to the back of the house and warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday now this really confused George because he had just installed an electric stove and it required the entire house to be rewired and the electric company came out and told him that the boxes were completely safe in the weeks leading up to Christmas the older boys noticed a car parked along the main highway with the occupants watching the younger Sodder children returning from school. After the family celebrated on Christmas Eve 1945, Marion, who was 19 at the time, stayed up with her younger sisters as they played with the new toys that she had just bought them. At 10 p.m., Jenny told them they could stay up as long as 14-year-old Morris and 9-year-old Lewis were awake. George, John, who was 23, and George Jr., who was 16, were already asleep. At 12.30 a.m., the phone rang, waking Jenny. The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was unfamiliar with. There was laughter and glass clinking in the background, which means they were either at a Christmas party or they were at a bar. Jenny told the woman she had called the wrong number, to which the woman laughed an odd laugh and then hung up. Jenny noticed Marion asleep on the couch in the living room, so she assumed the other children had gone up to the attic where they slept. At 1 a.m., Jenny was awakened again by the sound of something hitting the roof and then rolling. When she didn't hear any other noises, she went back to sleep. But around 1.30, she awoke to the smell of smoke. When she got up, she saw George's office on fire around the fuse box. She woke George up, and he woke his two older sons. Both parents and four of their children escaped the house. They yelled for the other children, but there was no response. They couldn't go up to the attic because the stairs were fully engulfed in flames. Marion ran to a neighbor's home to call the fire department but the call didn't go through so the neighbor ended up going into town to make the call. George attempted to climb the outside wall of the house with his bare feet. He broke open a window and cut his arm in the process. He and his sons had gone around the house for the ladder but it wasn't in its normal spot which would be leaned against the house a water barrel that could have been used put the fire out was frozen solid that bit of information is not very pertinent to this because it's West Virginia in December it's really cold So, it would be frozen solid. That is, that's just part of living in West Virginia. George tried to pull his company trucks up to the house so that he and his sons could climb up to to the attic. The trucks wouldn't start. Even though they had worked the day before, they didn't start. At this point, the six family members had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. Now They assumed that all five children had died in the blaze. The fire department did not respond until later that morning. The excuse was due to low manpower because of the war. The war that had already ended. The troops were coming home. Also, Fire Chief Morris said the next day, one of the things that caused the delay was the fact that he didn't know how to drive the truck. The fire truck. What? What? You would think the chief, of all people, would know how to drive that truck. Because don't you have to train the rest of the crew to drive the truck? How did you become chief? By 10 a.m., Chief Morris told the family they hadn't found any remains. While another account states they did actually find some bones and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. The chief believed the children died in the fire and it was hot enough to burn the bodies completely. So so let's let's talk about that for just a second. Okay? Because it's, it's not a true assessment and I say that because a crematorium typically burns at roughly 2500 degrees for two hours the bones are left behind in order to get the so-called ash of our loved ones from the crematorium they have to put the bones in a grinder and that's how we get the finished results A typical house fire burns at around 1100 degrees. With five people, there should be bones left over. Okay? Fire does not destroy anything but evidence. That's it. It doesn't actually destroy the body. There's always something left. Always. Back to the case. The fire chief told George to leave the site undisturbed for the fire marshal to conduct his own investigation. But, after four days, a grieving George couldn't take it anymore. And he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of turning it into a memorial garden. The local coroner began an inquest, and the jurors decided the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. However, on that same jury was the insurance salesman, who had told George his house would go up in smoke. Odd dink, don't you think? On December 30, 1945, the children were officially declared dead and their funeral was held on January 2, 1946. Their parents were not in attendance due to being grief-stricken. Soon after the funeral, the family began rebuilding their lives even as questions regarding the official findings began to surface. The family began to wonder why, if it was due to electrical issues. Were the Christmas lights still on during the early stages of the fire? Then, they found the ladder that they were looking for at the foot of an embankment 75 feet away from the house. A telephone repairman told them their phone line had not burned through, as originally assumed. But it had been cut, which would explain why the phone call didn't go through. Whoever cut the line had to be willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole and then reach 2 feet away from it to make that cut. The neighbors reported seeing a man stealing a block and tackle from the slaughter property around the time of the fire. He was arrested and did admit to cutting the phone line and the theft. He thought he was cutting the power line. However, there is absolutely no no record of who this man was or why he decided he needed to cut that line. Jenny Miss Jenny. I'm impressed with this woman. <laughs> I have I have a lot of respect for her. She couldn't accept Chief Morris's belief that all traces of those bodies had burned. She couldn't accept it because many of the household appliances had been found in the ash, and they were still recognizable. And she had also read an article recently about a fire that happened around the same time. All seven members of that family died, and all of their skeletal remains were found. Jenny also became a bit of a forensic scientist herself. She would burn small piles of animal bones to see if they would completely burn to ash. They never did. She interviewed an employee of a local crematorium who told her that human bones remained even after burning for two hours at 2,000 degrees, which was much hotter and longer than the house fire. If you remember, the house fire was only about 45 minutes. George believed his trucks had been tampered with, but his son-in-law would later state he believed that George and his sons actually flooded the engines in their haste to start the vehicles. It's a very good possibility. In the spring of 1946, the family planted flowers that Jenny would tend to for the rest of her life. Evidence would soon emerge that the fire had been set intentionally. A bus driver stated he had seen people throwing what appeared to be lighted bottles at the house. Now, I don't know what they called them then. But I know nowadays we call that a Molotov cocktail. Also, young Sylvia, who was only three years old when the house fire happened, found what looked like a possible hand grenade in the bushes. Witnesses claimed to see the children in a car that was driving away from the scene. The family also hired a P.I. from nearby Golly Bridge to look into the case. and He let them know about the insurance salesman being on the coroner's jury. And he also went with George to question Chief Morris because there were rumors that he had found a human heart. Morris admitted it then he led them to where he buried it. He dug it up and he gave it to them. They sent it off for testing. Know what it came back as? Beef liver. That's right. Cow liver. Supposedly, Morris planted it at the scene, hoping the family would just accept the deaths in august 1949 a pathologist supervised a new dig through the dirt where a dictionary belonging to the children and some coins were found they also found several small bone fragments that were sent to the smithsonian for inspection they were confirmed to be the lumbar vertebra from a person around the ages of 16 or 17. Too old to be any of the missing children. It was later determined to come from the cemetery in Mount Hope. In 1950, the state officially closed the case, stating it to be hopeless. So the FBI picked it up as an interstate kidnapping case just to close it out in 1952. The family then started to print flyers and offer up a 50 a $5,000 reward for any information that would bring some closure to them. In 1952, they also erected two billboards. One on the site where the home Once stood and the other along US Route 60 near Anstead. It did bring some information regarding sightings of the children. George followed up with each bit of information in person. In St. Louis, it was claimed Martha was being kept at a nearby convent. George had also heard that Jenny had a relative in Florida that had children that resembled his own. That relative had to prove those children were actually his own before George would even let it go. In 1967, George and his son-in-law Grover Paxton went to Houston, Texas, because a woman stated Lewis revealed his true identity after having too much to drink. She believed he and Morris were living somewhere in Texas. Texas is a big state. That's v- rather vague, I think. George was unable to speak to the woman, but the local police were able to help them locate them and the two men denied being Lewis and Morris. Paxton later said that George doubted their denial until his death. Soon after, Jenny received a letter with what may be the most piece of evidence of life. It was postmarked Central City, Kentucky with no return address. Inside was a photo of a young man about 30 years old. He strongly resembled Lewis who would have been in his 30s. On the back it simply stated, "Lewis Sauter. The family hired another PI to go to Central City, but he never reported back to them, and they were never able to locate him again. However, they truly believed that in that photo was Lewis, So they enlarged it, and hung it over the fireplace. George passed away in 1969. Jenny would stay in the family home and wear black in mourning. She tended the garden at the site of the old house until her own death in 1989. After her death, the family took the billboards down they never stopped looking for their siblings, though. In 2021, Sylvia, the youngest of the solder children, and last known living member, passed away at the age of 79. And like I said, I love the fact that Miss Jenny basically became a forensic scientist in her own way. Sometimes that's what it takes. It takes a a parent's unwavering faith that that child is alive to find them. Now, I, I personally do not believe that the kids died in the fire. And the reason I don't believe it is because... And this is... You would think if someone is burning to death there would be screams there was silence by the time she woke up she would have heard the kids coughing she heard nothing so I don't think that the kids were in the attic now it is it is widely believed in West Virginia that the Sicilian Mafia took them I do believe that the two young men George encountered in Texas were his sons and it's it's widely believed that they were protecting their family and that's why they said they weren't them but what do you guys think? Do, do you think the local police and fire departments were involved? Do you, do you think the two visitors were? Do me a favor. Head over to the True Crime and Whatnot Facebook page. And let's talk this one out. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. And as always, stay true and whatnot. Bye.